Hoosier United Methodist Podcast, episode number 30, with Dr. Adolf Hansen, author of Caring for Those Who Remain. One of the most important is by dealing with these matters, uh, a person can be set free to live life more deeply and more fully. Hi, this is Dave Powell, pastor at Edwardsville United Methodist Church, and you are connected to the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller, making disciples for Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to achieving the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The Hoosier United Methodist podcast will help you and your church connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from successful pastors and people making a difference in United Methodist churches in Indiana. And now, here's Brad. Hello again, good people. This is Dr. Brad Miller with the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast. And this is what I've got today. In the church, we who are clergy have a lot of duties to take on. But yet, even though there's a myriad of duties to take on, there are a few core things that are expectations and things that virtually every clergy person are involved with. They include, of course, worship, leading worship, preaching, teaching. That's pretty much something we almost we all do who are in local church settings, do just about every week. But there are other common things that we do on a regular basis. One of those is performing weddings and the counseling and the uh, ser- service of performing a wedding, which happens for most of us on a relatively regular basis several times a year. And there's another thing that happens to most of us who are clergy several times a year as well, and that's conducting a funeral. Here's my question for the day. How many times those of us who have conducted a funeral and those of us who have been surrounded by the situation where a family member or a loved one has passed away, have we encountered the matter where there was little to no Preparation for the drama of death when it occurs. I'm talking about grief counseling, to be sure, and emotional uh, wherewithal and dealing with family dynamics. That's all a part of it. But what about some of the practical matters of funeral planning, of, um, of financial planning, of, of ca- what is the resources, insurance and finances and uh, legal responsibilities, all these various things that go into play. And oftentimes people are simply not prepared. And I know that's happened to me, and I suspect it's happened to uh, most clergy people at one time or another, perhaps many times, where we've been with families and they've looked to the pastor or to somebody like, what do we do now? Not prepared. Well, today our guest is going to help us sort through some of this a little bit. We have today with us on the Hoosier United Methodist podcast, uh, Dr. Adolph Hansen. 
He is the author of the book, Caring for Those Who Remain, a practical guide for people dealing with end-of-life issues. And this is exactly what it's entailed to be. It is a guide based on Dr. Hansen's own experiences and the loss of his own daughter, who was tragically killed in an accident, but moreover with his parents and with other people he's been with about how to deal with these matters and practical means. And he talks about the, our, we have a great conversation here today on the podcast. I really want you to listen to it and take it to heart because it's really about how we can uh, take care of matters and have some conversations ahead of the drama of death in order to relieve some stress. And of course, people are stressed at that time. And so that's what his book does, and his purpose is to help people to deal with it this time. And it deals with matters before uh, death occurs, some of the legal matters, funeral matters, finances, liabilities, follow-up, uh, interpersonal things. There are spiritual aspects, of course, and there's, but there's a lot of pragmatic kind of thing here. And it's about learning from this. And, and what Dr. Hansen says, that if you do this, it helps set you free. And I, I was really interested in our conversation that, that uh, Dr., uh, Dr. Adolf Hansen shares a little bit about his own experiences with his own parents and his own life, and particularly also with a support group that he was a part of that uh, meets on Tuesday mornings, uh, a dad's group that um, helps deal with people who have had a loss in their life, particularly dads who've lost children. Dr. Hansen has spent a life in academia, and he's written several books, uh, many of them along this theme of dealing with loss and hope and loss. And he spent uh, 12 years at the University of Indianapolis on the faculty there, uh, United Methodist Institution here in Indiana. And then he was also uh, 21 years on the faculty and staff at our United Methodist Seminary, Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary up at, uh, in Evanston, Illinois, Northwestern. And so he has this uh, great experience, and he tells, shares a, in this interview a little bit about his experiences in academics, as well as uh, his experiences growing up in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, New York, and his faith journey. Lots of good stuff here. But I also want you to hear that uh, Dr. Hansen and I have a little conversation about the state of the United Methodist Church right now. He's working on a, a new book that has to do with hope in the midst of of crisis, and how we can be hopeful even in the midst of some of the consternation we have going on in the United Methodist Church. And he gives some re- really unique takes on the issues of homosexuality and how we can develop uh, new ways of looking at our church pi- uh, polity in order to, to deal with these issues and and get us what he calls an eventually to a place with a fuller understanding of God's revelation. There's lots of good stuff here, and I invite you to take a listen to what we're talking about. As always, the mission of the Hoosier United Methodist podcast is to have these types of conversations, to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church in the state of Indiana and beyond in order to fulfill our overall mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That's what we're looking to do here today on the Hoosier United Methodist podcast. We hope that you'll help us spread the word to others by uh, getting the word out on uh, on I, uh, subscribing and rating and reviewing on iTunes and uh, liking our Facebook page and spreading the word about us. That's what we're about here, spreading the good news about the church and about the people and places that we're all about. So we're going to do that right now as we have a great conversation with Dr. Adolph Hansen 
the author of Caring for Those Who Remain. So let's get into the interview right now. He is a former professor at the University of Indianapolis in Indianapolis, Indiana. He is uh, formerly on the faculty and staff at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. He is an author. He's a pastor. He is a thought-provoking leader. He has been involved with United Methodist Church for his entire career, or uh, almost entire career, and has been even his retirement years. He's been an avid writer and advocate and uh, and church leader and teacher, uh, rabbi, some might say, in the sense of being a teacher. But he is Dr. Adolf Hansen. Who's our guest today on the podcast? Welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Hanson. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Hanson, uh, what I like to ask people to share in their initial connection with the with the podcast here is just tell us a little bit about your faith journey. What brought you to Christ in the first place, and how did you kind of land in the position you're in life now? I was brought to church as an infant in Brooklyn, New York in a Norwegian-American Methodist church since my parents were born in Norway. So I just grew up in the church. And then uh, at age six, uh, during a time when uh, a woman was leading a program for children, she just asked who wanted to affirm their being a follower of Jesus Christ. And that was the language that was used. And uh, we sang this uh, small uh, chorus, into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And then she said, if uh, that is uh, something you want to do and you want to follow Jesus Christ, why don't you come so we can have a word of prayer. And a number of youth went forward, and I looked and saw my older sister go forward, and I thought, well, I I guess I want to be a follower of Jesus. It was not a heavily emotionally laden event. It was just a very simple time. But I remembered that. My mother was present. A lot of parents were there for this program. And uh, when I came home, uh, her wording to me was, I'm so thrilled that you gave your heart to Jesus. And so I was just learning to write in school. I think I was six or seven years old, learning to print. And I printed in my Bible, I gave my heart to Jesus when I was six years old. And then, of course, through confirmation, and then I wondered, you know, what did that mean? And uh, then made uh, a more uh, definite commitment, and I've been a follower of Jesus Christ all my life. So an affirmation and a confirmation, even in writing, at a very early age. And that writing aspect has been going through all your life, and you've been involved with educational ministry. Tell us a little bit about a little bit about your journey in ministry, and some of the things you were involved with in your ministry career. Well, I started out uh, as an associate pastor in the North Indiana Conference because the lead pastor at Simpson Church, at a time when it had seventeen or eighteen hundred members, came to New York. He knew me, and he invited me to come back to Indiana since I'd been here at Taylor University and gotten acquainted with the state. And I served there two years, and during that time, I thought a lot about whether or not I would go on to further schooling. And after two years, I left and went on and went through a Ph.D. program at uh, Northwestern University. And uh, as a result of that, then when I finished the degree, it was a difficult circumstance for me because I was offered a job on a college campus as a professor. 
I was offered a job at a seminary as professor, and I was offered a job in a local congregation. At Bishop Richard Rains was my uh, person who had ordained me, and he was attending Reading Street Church, and uh, he was interested in my coming there to work with Dick Lancaster, which I did for three years. But I also taught at New York Theological Seminary, where I had attended, and I commuted to New York for a couple of years while I was at Reading Street. Every Thursday night to New York and back on Friday morning, taught a Thursday night class, and I just loved the teaching, and they really wanted me to come on the faculty there, but I didn't feel led to move my family to New York. York City. And so while talking with uh, Gene Cease at the University of Indianapolis, and I was asking it to be a reference for a position at another school, he said, well, why don't you come here? And I said, well, is there an opening? He said, well, there will be in a year. And I said, well, I'm thinking of moving this year. And so he worked something out. Uh, someone was going to retire in a year, and I went there and taught, and I spent 12 years there. And I, I learned during that time that I could be an academician and teach, but I could also be a pastor to students at the same time. And that's been very important to me. So it's not just a head trip with students, but it's the heart as well as the head. And they get you working directly with people as well, which I know is a part of your heart is working with people. Then you end up going from a college setting to a seminary setting. Yes, an opening came uh, for a vice presidential position at Garrett Evangelical, and I was teaching. I've been teaching, uh, had been teaching in the course of study school for a number of years, and it was a summer program at Garrett, not the one in Indiana. And while I was there, the president asked if he could uh, talk with me about a position at the seminary, and I said, "Well, uh, what do you have in mind?" And he told me about it, and I said, "Well, I'd have to be a faculty member as well as a vice president, so I don't know that that would quite fit." Some weeks went by, and I got this invitation to come for an interview. And I just said to Neil Fisher, who was the president, I said, I haven't even seen the job description. You know, what are you really looking for? But I did go for the interview. Long story short, uh, I went there, went through two interviews, one to become a faculty member, one to become a vice president. And I stayed there for 21 years. And uh, Dr. Hanson, you may or may not recall that uh, I was a student at Garrett at that time, and I was a part of the interview team, uh, the student part of that, which was a part of that process. So uh, I don't know, you can blame me or not for that part of it. <laughs> but uh, it was a great experience having you on the faculty there at Garrett when I was there, and, uh, and there's been a big part of who you're about. And being involved with academics certainly got you involved with things like uh, not only teaching, but writing. Tell us a little bit about your writing career, some of the things that you've done in the past, and some of the things you're currently working on. Well, while at a seminary, I uh, had a lot of responsibilities for the kind of writing that fits a seminary. Uh, in terms of uh, various programs and policies. And uh, I was vice president for administration, so I reviewed so many documents and I spent my energy in that way and couldn't do much writing of what was part of my passion. But when the opportunity came and I saw that I was going to retire in 2003, I spent the last couple of years pulling a book together. And uh, my first volume was published actually when I was retired, one year after a book entitled Responding to Loss, a Resource for Caregivers but it was largely out of the context of the academy. So it's filled with footnotes and bibliography, and it's more like a textbook. And I, a real uh, academic type of work, right? Yes, very much so. And I came to St. Luke's. I had been invited by uh, uh, the Staff Parish Committee and Kent Millard to serve as theologian in residence on a half-time basis. And I did that for a number of years. And uh, as I got acquainted with the congregation, I realized 
like any congregation, that there are so many things people want to deal with, but um, going to professors who are writing, it's oftentimes within their discipline and they're not thinking as much of writing for the local church, unfortunately, mm. as they are thinking about writing for the academy. That's a good point. Sometimes there's just a real, um, I don't know what you want to, might call it, ivory tower or whatever you want to call it, but kind of a separation between the academic and the practical application. Uh, say just a little bit about that in terms of how you tried to integrate your writing into practical application. Part of the reward system for faculty are the gills. And gills meaning, in my field, the Society of Biblical Literature or the American Association of Pastoral Counselors. And you write to be recognized by them and uh, the criteria that is important to them. When I work with people at St. Luke's, particularly people who are thinking of going into the ministry, I spent a lot of time with that over a period of years, um, I realized that the issues that they were raising were different in many ways, related but different in the way they expressed them from what seminary textbooks were writing. And so after that first volume came out, I uh, was invited to meet with two dads from St. Luke's who had lost a son or a daughter, and I, as you know, had lost a daughter also. And so we met together one time, and then they said, well, can we meet again? That was a church, the first meeting. And we then went to a place where we could have breakfast on the way to work, 7 o'clock in the morning on the east side on Shadeland Avenue, or just off 82nd Street. And then uh, we shared our stories. And then uh, a fourth dad showed up, unexpected. And a fifth dad showed up. And then later, a few weeks later, a sixth dad showed up, some out of St. Luke's. And it was all by word of mouth, not by any publicity. And after a while... We're obviously touching a need. Yes. And after a while, you know, we had a dozen dads and then 14, 16 dads every Tuesday morning without a break. Didn't matter if it was raining, snowing, Easter, Christmas, you know. And then it's, my, my sense was that this was a hunger and dads didn't have anyone to talk to about grief they were going through. And so I was the coordinating editor for a volume, and we called it Tuesday Mornings with the Dads. Mm. I knew about Tuesday Mornings with Maury, and I thought that was a catchy title. So 14 of those dads wrote a story. And I did the introduction to it, and uh, it became uh, popular within, you know, central Indiana and so forth. And the group still meets Tuesday morning, started in 2004. And uh, there's now a group on the south side that's equally as large, and they've done another volume with that. So that was the second book I wrote, Tuesday Mornings with the Dads. Touching a real need there in this whole theme of grief and loss. And you mentioned you lost a, a, a daughter to a terrible accident of, a number of years ago. But this theme of... Um, Dealing with loss has been the, uh, the theme of some of your writing, particularly one of your latest books, which is uh, the, the title is Caring for Those Who Remain. Tell us a little bit about that book. Who Who is the target or who's the audience for this latest book? And tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Uh, let me just plug in that there were two other volumes in between. One, uh, Three Simple Truths. And that was dealing with where is God in the midst of tragedy and loss. And then the fourth one was a book with eight young clergy in our conference, a book entitled Becoming a Disciple, a Lifelong Venture. And then um, what occurred in our family situation was a lot of conversation with my wife and I initially. Uh, do we have all of our documentation in, 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 in place? And uh, I should say your, your wife, Naomi, was the co-author of, your, of this book we're talking about. Yes. Uh, and uh, it started out by us just collecting materials and realizing we had some things in a file cabinet, some things in a folder, some things in a safe deposit box. So we started out doing things for ourselves. And the subtitle of the book is a practical guide for 
for end-of-life preparation. And to your question about the audience, it's written for multiple audiences in this sense. It's really an intergenerational book. That is, if someone is an older person but they have grown children, it's for both of them. And the book is designed to evoke a conversation between generations. Or if someone's reading that mid-career and their parents are living, it's for them to read and the parents to read, but it's the conversation that's actually more important than just what's in the book. So we put together eight chapters. Five chapters deal with before a death occurs. There's a chapter about family heritage and gathering all the things that are important in pictures and other kinds of documents and, um, you know, genealogy of some sort, a genogram or uh, a tree. Um, The second chapter deals with legal matters. And uh, not just a will, but a health care power of attorney connected to a living will, if there's to be a trust, if there's to be a durable power of attorney, etc. And then in the third chapter, uh, we we deal with um, uh, funeral matters. And it's uh, to help people think through um, where they'd like to be buried or where they'd like to be cremated, uh, what circumstance is going to lead up to that. And uh, fourth chapter and fifth chapter deal with assets and liabilities in chapter four, and in chapter five with personal finance. And get excuse me, very get, practical, pragmatic matters to deal with, as well as the you know, the deep emotional and all the family dynamic things are going on. In one way or another, you're dealing with a number of these, aren't you? Yes. And at the end of each chapter, we, we had a section called two pages, personal experience, one page that says ours, and we tell what we've done with legal matters or funeral matters, so forth, and another page saying yours, and we do a whole page of questions so people can think about what they want to do. And we're very clear by saying, here's some things we've done, but we're not advocating you should do those. They're just examples of what fit our life circumstance. Things may be very different to what fits your life circumstance. So in some regard, it's even a workbook. You could work through these questions for, to, uh, to uh, deal with your own personal circumstances. Yes, and uh, it has a chapter 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 6 is near the time of death, and chapter 7 is at the time of death, and chapter 8 is after the time of death. And it's to work out things uh, as it did between my wife and I. You know, I mean, we've learned a lot of things. She has an annuity through a retirement system in another state and education. And I understood it as a single life annuity. When she died, it would be over. But we checked things. I called and they said, no, sir, you're going to get half of that if your wife dies before you. I said, really? And then uh, I said, anything further? Well, who's ever the next to kin, which would be our daughter, she'll receive a 3000 settlement at the time that you die if you're both gone. See, we didn't know that. A lot of things we didn't yeah. know. So we learned in the process. But what was also important, Brad, is not just uh, what might be helpful to us, but then we sat down and we ended up with two loose sleeves, each two inches thick, filled with documents. And then we reviewed those with our daughter. Mm. Uh, and she. And so you had that important conversation, didn't you? Very much so. And uh, we've even included our grandchildren in some things. We told our grandchildren what's in the will, uh, how they're included. And that was a rewriting of the will because when they were small, we didn't include them that way. We had a trust that the bank set up for them. The reality, Dr. Hansen, is uh, in my ministry, and I'm sure in yours, it is a reality that many people – don't come anywhere near doing any of this, do they? There's a lot of uh, unpreparation, a lot of things that happen that are just 
out of sorts with people. And, and hopefully this can be a resource to be helpful. Yeah, it's been interesting. I, I did a four-week class uh, at St. Luke's and had uh, a sizable number of people come. And uh, hearing the reports uh, after the class was over, but even during the class, you know, I bought another copy at a moment in some mature years. Uh, my daughter needs to read that. And then she said, well, how can I get another copy of that? I want my husband to read that, too. So as I said earlier, it's to uh, be intergenerational so that it opens up the conversation between uh, whatever the age group is. Uh, But it's uh, usually two generations. Occasionally, it's even three with a real elderly parent and then uh, son or daughter and then with their children. And it's designed to be a practical guide. So it it also has some appendices at the end, one of which is a a sheet that you can use to interview someone else to get all the information about them that's important for you to have, as I did with my parents. Yeah. And it it sounds like you learned some things out of, well, you lost your daughter. And you've also lost some of your uh, your parents as well and other folks in your life you've had those losses and what did you learn out of your own loss experiences which you were able to uh, apply in the writing and in being a resource to other persons one of the most important is by dealing with these matters uh, a person can be set free to live life more deeply and more fully let me give you a quick example. Absolutely. I went and talked to my parents when they were in good health. They lived in Connecticut. I was in Evanston. I went by myself to spend two or three days because I wanted to review some things with them. And one evening we sat outside, beautiful summer evening, in the midst of all of the flowers, and, and they lived in a cottage up on a hillside. And I said to my mom and dad, I said, there's some things about you that I don't know. And they said, like what? We haven't kept things from you. I said, Dad, I don't even know your Social Security number and mom. And he said, oh, well, I'll give you those in the house. I don't have that memorized. And and I said, a lot of other things. For example, the property we're sitting on. I said, there's a deed for this property, but I think you bought the property next door. He got one acre for his home. He said, oh, yeah. I said, is that a separate deed? He said, yes. I said, there are two deeds. No, son, there are three deeds. And he explained the third one. None of which you knew, right? Didn't know anything. And I said, where are they? He said, oh, you know, in the safety deposit box at the bank. And they live in a small village. I said, oh, is there, uh, is there more than one bank? Oh, yeah, but, you know, we're at so-and-so bank. And I said, oh, I didn't know that. And so we started talking. Some assumptions made, right? And then when I said to him, you've been, he was, you know, from Europe and he had learned cabinet making, furniture making, and excellent uh, Finnish carpenter. And he just said, uh, uh, oh, I guess I said to him, uh, when the time comes, uh, you want to be buried, I would assume in solid wood, none of this veneer stuff. He couldn't stand veneer. His whole house was solid wood, even in the kitchen wood. And so he said, no, son, I want to be cremated. I said, cremated, Dad? And he said, yeah, didn't I ever tell you that? I said, no. So I jotted that down. At that point, we started talking about cremation. My mother went inside to make coffee. <laughs> it was bothersome for her, and I respected that. Um, and then I wrote down what I heard. I sent it back to them. And, of course, my mother said, why didn't you put down I want to be cremated? I said, Mother, you didn't tell me that yet. And so back and forth and some writing. and we got, got the conversation started, didn't it? And we got it all in writing within the next you know, couple of weeks. Well, here, here's the point of the story in particular. Four and a half years later... My father's in the hospital, and he's close to death with mesothelioma, lung cancer. Never smoked in his life, but he worked in the holes of ships during the Second World War, and that asbestos in the holes, and he only lived for six months. 
So we came to the hospital. My dad is very close to death at that point, can hardly speak. I thanked him for a lot of things. And uh, he said, son, I want to thank you for something. And it took him even hard to get out those words. And I said, well, what's that, Dad? He said, I want to thank you for four or five years ago on that summer evening when you asked all these questions. Thank you for not waiting till I'm in the hospital to learn all of that. Wow. That's a powerful statement. And, the, and it also goes on the other side of it that so many people do wait until the crisis comes or, or, to, or until communication is difficult, things like that. Well, Dr. Hanson, I know this has been a kind of a theme in your writing, but what are you, what are you working on now? What's some of your writings that you're working on now or what, that we, can we anticipate coming out from you? I think we're living in a time when people are yearning for hope. There's so much fear in the world in all different ways and all the divisiveness that's going on in the political scene and many other settings. And so I've begun the process and outlined a book called Hope in the Midst of Loss. Not hope after loss or not hope eventually to get there, but I really believe in things happening in the midst of loss, you know, glimmers of joy in the midst of loss or times of love in the midst of loss. And this one's going to be about hope hope in the midst of loss and uh, I have uh, reviewed that with a number of people uh, in the sense of asking questions. Before I write a book I always talk to a lot of people and I ask them what they think and what's meaningful and what might I include in this kind of thing and so that's probably the next one. Maybe sometime in 2017 I'll get that done. Well, you mentioned how this is a, a word of hope in the midst of, of loss, of crisis. You mentioned some political unrest. Or certainly, we have some some discord and unrest even in our United Methodist Church. Uh, how do you think your thinking and writing may speak to or give me your kind of your assessment of where we stand right now in our United Methodist Church and how what are some signs of hope perhaps moving forward? Well, I'm a hopeful person, but I choose hope. Hope is something that just happens. I choose hope every morning when I wake up. I believe it's going to be a great day until I learn otherwise. See, it's a stance you take. And for some people, they say, well, I just don't have any hope. And I say to them, well, you know, hope doesn't come and leave you on its own. It's your own doing in part, not fully. And then if there's something you can anchor that hope in, and, you know, for me and for you and others, to anchor that hope in the Lord makes all the difference in the world because that anchor holds regardless of what happens in life. And that's part of what I, what I will write about. But in relation to the Methodist Church, I'm hopeful that the commission will come up with a way of uh, dealing with the polity of the church. I think that's as important as a question of homosexuality, to have one church saying a certain set of beliefs and having an American culture dominate what that's going to be and give it to other countries, that's not working. And, and therefore, my hope is that that group will have the courage to find a way where the polity can be different for those in Africa or those in, in Norway and Sweden or those in the United States. So that, that's one hope that I have. But the other, Basically kind of a multifaceted approach to how we do polity? Yes, I think so. One way for everybody isn't going to work anymore. I think we finally have awakened to that. And uh, I see that as very, very essential, even though that's not directly what was given. And the composition of the commission that the bishops have now appointed, those 32 people, are going to represent the world very differently than if it's an American group with a couple of representatives overseas. But I'm also hopeful we'll be able to deal with the elephant in the room in a way that I don't think we've yet dealt with, and that's a question of homosexuality. Let me give you an example. 
I'm wondering if it's time to stop using the word. I've talked to numbers of people very intentionally in recent months, and no one seems to be able to define that word very well. And when they try to, it's usually in some type of language that's not very specific. And I'm wondering if we should stop using that word and find some way of talking about relationships between human beings and it isn't just under that category. You know, the whole word homosexuality sexuality only came into the language, language in the late 19th century. It's a word that's not used as a word in the Bible anywhere. And so we all talk about it. And people talk about words like homosexuality. Um, it's incompatible with Christian teaching. Well, the discipline doesn't say that. It says the practice of homosexuality. It talks about behavior, doesn't talk about beliefs. Mm -hmm. And yet the way I hear it by people at our conference and beyond, homosexuality is incompatible. No, no one has said that. The church hasn't said that either. It's certain behaviors that the church feels is incompatible with a certain type of Christian teaching. But all Christian teaching doesn't say that. And I think maybe the word is Again, not— Again, it's kind of a multifaceted approach in a way. Yes, and, and it's so, it's so um, hard to define unless we're very explicit about it. So if I say, if a man kisses another man, is that homosexuality? And they say, well, I think so. I said, why? The first time a man kissed me, it wasn't homosexuality. It was my wife's grandfather from Germany welcoming me into the family, and he kissed me on the right cheek and he kissed me on the left cheek. Certainly there are different cultural norms as well in these types of things, right? Yes, precisely. And so I think that um, we need to look at that and define it. I'm willing to define that in very explicit physiological terms. If, if so if I'm hearing you correctly, you have kind of a physiological aspect of it, a spiritual aspect, you have a biblical interpretation aspect, all these things that need to be explored more in depth rather than kind of a uh, broad-based uh, overarching you know, reaction. Anytime someone says about homosexuality to me, I just pause and what do you mean by that word? And many times they can't really explain what they mean by the word. And I press them a little bit as to what that means. Well, they might say, I know it when I see it, or something like that. Well, yeah, but the, so I think the elephant in the room is we haven't defined the word. I think another thing we need to stop doing is just automatically saying homosexuality is sin. Because homosexuality has not very well been defined. So what is it that's sinful? If two men live together, or two women live together, is that homosexuality? I don't think so. Suppose they uh, sleep in the same room. Is that homosexuality? I don't think so. Our college campuses do it all the time, or two women together. You see, we have to come to define what does that mean when we say that if a man is attracted to another man, is that homosexuality? I don't think so. And some people have that attraction. Some people are attracted to both genders. So my concern is that we're really not talking about explicit ways of understanding homosexuality and then to just call that word being sinful, I think is just not appropriate. And I'm going to try to write something about that. I also want to add to that, I don't think it's appropriate to spend time only with one's own sexual orientation. Mm. I spend a lot of time getting to know people who are gay or lesbian or bisexual, transgendered, not so much with transgendered, but with lesbian and gay and bisexual people. And I get a very different understanding that I spend time with them. And I hear their perspective, and anyone who's gone into the subject, I want to say, what experience have you had with people of a different sexual orientation? And they say, not very much. And I said, maybe that's the place to start and not formulate all these beliefs and affirmations or negations until you have a way to get acquainted with people. 
So building relationships is another aspect of this. When you actually get to know people who are different than you, then you start to break down some barriers. You actually find some commonality, don't you? And that, that's why I raised the question, is it time to stop using the word homosexuality? Is it time to stop just calling all homosexuality a sin? Is it time to stop just living with one's uh, own sexual orientation in one's relationships? So something could emerge out of that. I might call it, is it time to stop? <laughs> Interesting, interesting. Perhaps a good title there. But it just seems like you're thinking of a way forward for our church is a deeper dive into definitions and understandings of what it is we are really talking about. Cool. Well, Dr. Hansen, I'd like to give just a couple more things here. What do you see? Do you see this? Do you see signs of hope moving forward? And what are they if you do see some signs of hope moving forward? In relation to the church, uh, people who will not just dig in their heels and try to defend where they are. My hope is, and I see it at times, of people who are open to listening to other points of view, really listening and examining their own assumptions so that they might look at, for example, Scripture differently. You know, I learned something at Taylor University from a key professor, Milo Rediger. He talked about a progressive understanding of God's revelation. Now, the word progressive has gotten different meanings, so I would change and just say a fuller revelation of God's, uh, yeah, a fuller understanding of God's revelation. So we had one understanding of slavery, and then we got a fuller understanding. We had one understanding of women in the church, and we got a fuller understanding. We had one view of sexuality, Things like uh, male sperm contained all that was necessary for life, and a woman was just a receptacle. No understanding of the contribution of a woman and a man in, in the earlier years, way back first century and before. And so uh, out of that, my hope is that we'll reflect on what's the fuller understanding of God's revelation in terms of sexuality. And I'm hopeful people will enter that conversation and see what we've done with slavery and what, what the role of women and to see where is the role of sexuality because now we understand things very differently. You know, a lifetime relationship between two people of the same gender committed to each other. There was no such thing talked about in the first century. And so a trick for the night or whatever language persons have out of their own cultural setting, you know, certain things were looked at as being inappropriate. And so I think a fuller revelation comes out of our understanding of human sexuality much more fully. And I'm hopeful that God will lead us in that direction in a way that will allow for communication to take place and allow for some movement that's not limited by a certain point of view that's rigidly held and oftentimes rather unexamined. Absolutely. And so a, a real, an understanding of, of a hope moving forward is those who are devoted to a fuller, more complete understanding of God's revelation. That's a great thing. Just one more thing, then I'll to let you go. I always like to ask my guests, what's something that you personally like to do? A hobby, something you enjoy, something with your wife or kids or grandkids or whatever. What's something you like to do for you? Gee, a lot of them come to mind. I say, if I give you the long-range look during my lifetime, sailing in a sailboat uh, has been probably my most meaningful hobby, not just in a lake, not even just Lake Michigan. I've crossed Lake Michigan. I've raced boats. I've raced in the Mack race, you know, from Chicago to Mackinac Island. But I've also sailed a lot in the ocean. 
two of us were uh, in the ocean with someone who owned a boat there. We spent 15 days, sailed over a thousand miles all night long. And to see God's creation and the handiwork in the sky, when you look up and see the stars and the moon, to go through a storm and uh, just survive uh, what's going on there. That's been one of my joys on the water and uh, during my life. The other has been skiing. I've skied far beyond my capacities. I, I, I skied in Zermatt, Switzerland for the base of the Matterhorn all the way down when I didn't know how to ski very well. I'd only been on skis five or six times. But I made it because I was daring and I loved it. And I was not a youngster. I was in the mid-40s probably when I did that. And so I enjoy exciting adventures, the sailing in deep ocean waters, the skiing on slopes beyond where I ought to be in the Alps in Switzerland and those kind of things. But I also enjoy other things. And I'd say at the heart of it is probably my relationships. Mm. You know, I'm married for 57 years to the most wonderful woman I've ever met. Not a bad record. That's your best record right there, isn't it? <laughs> and, and also, I just have a lot of friends who I have a deep connection with. You know, I said to someone the other day, I don't think you'll misunderstand when I say, I really love you. And, the pers- and her husband was standing next to, it, to a woman. And she said, no, I know what you mean by that. And her husband said, I do too, Adolf. You could tell my wife that any time. <laughs> but that deep sense of love toward a woman, toward a man, and, and um, whomever it is that's meaningful to you. And love my family, of course. But there are a lot of colleagues in ministry that I deeply love. And, and persons in very different traditions, people who are outside the Christian faith, I really deeply love. And so that the relationship that runs very deep between two people or an individual and a group of people is the most powerful thing I know. So those relationships have also been a driving force in your writing and your love comes out of that and the practicality and all that type of things comes out. And we'll be looking for that to continue to come out as you continue to serve the church at, uh, in your relationship at St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Indianapolis and your writing and your teaching and your preaching and those relationships that you have with clergy as well. And if there's someone who listens to this who would like to have some conversation or connect or build a relationship, I'm very open to that. Uh, email is my best way of communication, and I would just invite further conversation to what you've done with this podcast as you've done with other podcasts because you're helping facilitate communication, and I really appreciate that. We'll put on our show notes. What is your email, Dr. Hansen? What's my name, but it has to be spelled correctly. <laughs> it's A-D-O-L-F dot Hansen, H-A-N-S-E-N, at Comcast.net. Very good. And on our show notes, we'll put his email as well as websites to his various books and writings. It's been a real pleasure today on the podcast to have with us uh, Dr. Adolph Hansen, who has a retired status in the Indiana Conference of the United Methodist Church, uh, professor, teacher, uh, leader, churchman, uh, and author of many books, including his latest title, Caring for Those Who Remain... Many thanks again to Dr. Adolph Hansen for really giving us a far-ranging dialogue about some of the things that are really, really important, dealing with death in very pragmatic matters, but also matters that can relieve stress, and some interesting conversation, of course, about uh, about the state of the United Methodist Church right now and what he calls, you know, hope. Uh, what he's talking about his book that he's working on now, Hope in the Midst of, of Crisis. Here's some of the things I hope that you picked up on here today is that how if you deal with the issues of death and dying ahead of time, you can relieve a lot of stress and it can set you free. 
And I love that. I love that because I think there's many things that we deal with in life. You know, we deal with depression and, you know, disease and, and divorce and all kinds of things that put pressure on us. If we can find ways to relieve things, especially in one of the ultimate pressure points, uh, dealing with death, that can be a helpful thing. And that's what he's all about here. Uh, hope, uh, hope in the midst of uh, this trying time. Then, uh, then again, in our conversation we had about the state of the United Methodist Church, I hope you also heard what he had to share about hope in the midst of loss, hope in the midst of stress, and that it's a choice that we make to choose hope. And I love that as well. And I hope you'll take that to heart and apply that in, in your life and in, in your, your ministry, that uh, ultimately it's about people listening and examining our own assumptions and listening to others in order to gain what Dr. Hansen calls a fuller understanding of God's revelation. And I think that's something that we just need in our church right now, in our world, a fuller understanding of God's revelation that starts really when we have our self-examination of ourselves and a good listening ear to others. Well, that's some great things to share today on the podcast. We hope that you have enjoyed what we do here on the Hoosier United Methodist podcast, where it is always our mission to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church in the state of Indiana for the purpose of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. We're always looking for great stories to tell. That's what we're really about, telling the stories of the people and the places and the authors and the ministries that are out there that are doing good things or have innovative stories to tell. And so that's what we wanted to be about. You can connect up with us at our website, HoosierUnitedMethodist.com, or you can also catch us on our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash Hoosier United Methodist. And uh, you can also uh, connect up with us uh, by making sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Just go to iTunes. Find the podcast there, Hoosier United Methodist Podcast, or you can look under my name, Brad Miller, and you can find us there and subscribe and rate and review. Well, good friends, it's been great to have you with us here on the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast today. Just want to remind you that we are all about strengthening the church and following the example of uh, John Wesley, who said always to do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as ever you can. That's all I got for now, good people. Now take it and run with it. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. We challenge you to be an active listener by subscribing and becoming a vital member of the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast community. Visit us on the web at HoosierUnitedMethodist.com and chat with other members at Facebook.com slash Hoosier United Methodist. Until next time, continue to make disciples and transform the world.